You're listening to the podcast of Village Church in Burbank, California. To learn more about Village Church, visit our website at villagechurchburbank.org. We hope you enjoy today's message. Title of the sermon is The Wolf and the Lamb. You'll see where that comes in very shortly. But on this fourth Sunday of Advent, we're going to be in Acts 17. Maybe not a traditional Advent or Christmas text, but it's where we're going to begin. Acts 17, we're going to look at a couple verses here, verses 6 and 7, and I want to give you the context. Paul and Silas are in Thessalonica, and they've been spreading the announcement of the story of Jesus and the Gospel. And some there in Thessalonica don't take very kindly, and they oppose them. And uh, they're going to look for Paul and Silas to to arrest them in some way. And let's pick it up in verse 6. When they could not find them, they dragged Jason and some brothers and sisters before the city authorities, shouting, these people who have been turning the world upside down have come here also. And Jason has entertained them as guests. They are all acting contrary to the decrees of the emperor, saying that there is another king named Jesus. Joy to the world. The Lord is come. Let earth receive her king. We sing it year after year after year. What does it mean? Well, it was about 20 years after the resurrection. Paul and Silas find themselves in Macedonia and northern Greece in the city of Thessalonica. And it's there where Paul, as his custom, he's going to spend the next three consecutive Sabbaths preaching a series of sermons in the local synagogue there in Thessalonica. We would call it a sermon series. And in these series, in this series of sermons over three consecutive Sabbaths in the local synagogue to mainly an audience of Jews and God-fearing Greeks, Paul begins to show them from their scriptures, from the prophets, that this Messiah who had been prophesied about and hoped for and longed for for hundreds of years. He shows them that this long-awaited king of the Jews who would be so anointed by God that he would actually become king of the nations. He shows them from their scriptures, from their prophets, that actually this Messiah had to suffer and die and be raised. And then he announces to them that this Jesus of Nazareth, who we've been telling you about, he's the one. He's the Messiah. He's the King. He's the Lord. And it's happened in our day, these things that the prophets have foretold about hundreds of years ago. It's happened right before our eyes. And now, this crucified, resurrected, ascended Messiah of God has now become king of the world. 
Well, here in Thessalonica, some of them believe, and they will become among the very first Christians of Thessalonica. But others of them reject the message Paul and Silas are bringing. And they fiercely oppose them. In fact, they fight against them. And they go into the public square of Thessalonica and they stir up a mob. Get them all riled up. And together, this angry mob, they're going to go hunting for these preachers of Jesus of Nazareth. And they've heard that Paul and Silas had been staying as guest in the home of a man named Jason. But when the angry mob arrives at Jason's house, Paul and Silas are nowhere to be found. And so they violently drag Jason and some others before the city authorities. And they make this accusation. They say, these people who have been turning the world upside down, they're now here in Thessalonica. And they're acting contrary to the decrees of Caesar. And they're proclaiming that they have another king, another Caesar, another emperor named Jesus. Now here's my question for you to ponder on this fourth Sunday of Advent. I don't want you to answer out loud. I just want you to hold the question. Is their accusation true? Or is it slander? Is it libelous? Is it a false accusation? You see, if Paul and Silas had just simply been going around preaching and announcing the dawn of a new religion with a new religious figure, something like that would not have likely stirred up a lot of trouble in the ancient Roman world. The first century world was awash in all kinds of religions. Because believe it or not, Rome was remarkably tolerant when it came to worship. Worship whoever you want. Have whatever God you want. Doesn't bother us. We rule this world. And so, if Paul and Silas were simply going from city to city, village to village, announcing a brand new religion, mostly people would just yawn. Some would sign up. But what wouldn't happen is it wouldn't stir up a whole lot of trouble. But a new politics, oh, that would be dangerous. Because whereas... Rome was awash in all kinds of religions. There was only one political scheme, and that's the Roman Empire. Only one political scheme. So if I'm going to ask the question in a different way, I'm going to put it like this. In light of the resurrection, did the early Christians radically reimagine the world? In other words, did the early Christians, in light of the resurrection of Christ, say, because this has happened, we've got to rethink everything? And did they so radically reimagine the world as to make the very dangerous claim that the world has a new emperor, a new Caesar, a new king named Jesus? The answer is, that the New Testament gives you emphatically and consistently is yes. That's precisely what they were saying. And that's exactly what the gospel is. In one sentence, the gospel is that Jesus is now king. As we sang a moment ago, he rules the world in truth and grace and makes the nations prove. That's what we mean when we call him Christ. We mean king. 
But there's a story that goes along with it. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth, and it was a good creation. But when man turned against God, we were expelled from the garden. And then Cain kills his brother Abel and goes forth to found the very first human civilization upon this practice of killing the brother who you call your enemy. And the world immediately begins to spin radically out of control. So much so that it becomes hopelessly, violently corrupt and and God even regrets making humankind. And in the days of Noah, he sends a flood upon the earth and only Noah and his family are spared in the ark. The rest of the earth is destroyed and he's going to start over with Noah and his family. But the solution... The solution doesn't work. And after the days of Noah, the world returns to being just as it was before, violent and corrupt. So God decides to go in a new direction, and he calls a man named Abraham. And he makes a promise to Abraham. He says, Abraham, through your seed, all nations of the earth are going to be blessed. And that old man and his barren old wife have a child named Isaac. And Isaac begets Jacob. And Jacob begets Joseph and the 12 tribes. And this family becomes a a growing nation. But then they're enslaved in Egypt for numerous generations. But God remembers the promise that he made to Abraham. And in the days of Moses, he brings the people out of Egypt. And when they get to Mount Sinai, God gives to his people Israel the law, the covenant, so that they might begin being formed into a truly peculiar and special people. And Israel's call had always been to be the people of God and to be a light to the world, to show the nations another way, a different way. But Israel largely fails at this mission. They don't do a very good job of it, and mostly they become like all of the other nations. And centuries later, they ask for a king. And eventually, they're given a king, the first king, King Saul. But he's rejected. So they're given a second king, King David. And God makes a promise to David, just as he had made a promise to Abraham centuries before. And God tells David, from your seed, you'll never lack one to sit upon the throne. But one of your descendants is going to be called a man of peace. And he's going to build a temple of peace. And he's going to sit on the throne and he's going to rule forever. 1,000 years later, in the little village of Bethlehem, an angelic announcement is made. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior who is King, Messiah, Lord. And this Messiah grows up And he begins to announce that the kingdom of God that we've been longing for, that was promised to David and Abraham, this kingdom of peace, God reigning over the earth, this kingdom has finally come. The government of God is coming. Salvation is coming in the kingdom and the reign and the rule of God upon the earth. But in Jerusalem, he's rejected and condemned and crucified and buried. But on the third day, God raises his son from the dead and exalts him to his right hand of power. 
and appoints him king of kings, not just king of the Jews, but king of the Gentiles. And now all of those promises and prophecies from the Old Testament have become true in Jesus Christ, the world's true king. This is the story of the gospel. The gospel is not a formula, it's a story. And this is the lamb who leads us into the new Jerusalem. And by new Jerusalem, we mean this new way of organizing humanity around the lamb and not the beasts. Because the new Jerusalem, this new organization of humanity under King Jesus is built upon reconciling love, not on avenging power. And the announcement of Revelation 11 has come true, that the kingdoms of the world have become the kingdoms of, of Christ because God has intervened in human history and has set his king upon the throne who now rules and reigns forever. This is the announcement that Paul and Silas make in Thessalonica. This is the message they were giving them. And the opponents stand up and say, these people who are turning the world upside down, now, what did they mean by that? You know, we tend to see that as just excited hyperbole. Oh, they're just turning the world upside down. What did they mean? They're turning the world upside down. Well, those who were making this accusation, they meant that the established order, the dominant script, the glue of society, the way the world has been put together, it's been turned on its head. It's been flipped upside down. In the established world of Caesar, a world which valued power and privilege and wealth and status and a rigid hierarchy and above all, the exaltation of empire and Rome's divine right to rule the world, all of that is being challenged and turned upside down by this strange movement centered around the worship of a crucified Galilean Jew who they claim has been raised from the dead and who is now the world's true emperor. I want you to feel the audacity of what these Christians were announcing. We're talking about a man who steps onto the stage of world history and he announces this new kingdom, this new arrangement like this. He does so by saying, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they are going to be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the earth. How many of you know just that alone would turn things upside down? Because the meek never get anything. The meek are the ones who get trampled underfoot by the powerful elite. It's those Babylonians, it's those Persians, those Greeks, those Romans. Those are the people that get the earth. And they don't inherit it. They just take it. They just seize it. But Jesus says, in this kingdom, the meek inherit the earth. Blessed are the merciful, for they're going to get mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they're going to see God at work and be, and be able to participate in what God is doing. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they'll be called the sons of God. And then finally, blessed are those who are persecuted for the sake of things being made right. Because when this kingdom comes down from the heavens, it's going to come precisely for people like that. And oh, I skipped one on accident. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst and ache for things to be made right. For this kingdom, they're going to find deeply satisfying. 
Now, because this Jesus, who these early Christians called king, because he announced the government of God like that, they realized very quickly, we're going to have to radically reimagine the world. And they did. They knew what Jesus preached in the Sermon on the Mount and in other places. And now that God has raised his son from the dead and they, they watched him ascend to the heavens as king, now they realize, you know what, we're going to have to rethink some things. So what did they do? They went to their Bibles. And they went to the prophets. Because several hundred years earlier, the prophets were doing the same thing. In prayer and in worship, the prophets were wondering, what is the world going to be like when Messiah comes? When Messiah takes the throne and, and begins ruling the world in this kingdom of Shalom, what's the world going to be like? And then under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, the prophets begin to write out their prophecies. And the early Christians paid close attention to these ancient prophecies because they believed they were happening in their day. Their mentality was, man, Messiah's come. So let's look back and see what Isaiah and Jeremiah and Ezekiel and all of those, Daniel, let's see what they were saying about what the world's going to be like when Messiah comes, because guess what? He's come. So Isaiah chapter 11. This is one of their passages that they studied. Isaiah 11. This is good Christmas stuff right here. You'll find this in Handel's Messiah. Let's just look at the first few verses here. Verse 1. Isaiah, writing like 600 years before the birth of Christ, writes this. A shoot shall come, up, come out from the stump of Jesse, and a branch shall grow out of his roots. Watch this, verse 2. The Spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him. Remember his baptism. The spirit of wisdom and understanding. The spirit of counsel and might. The spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord. He shall not judge by what his eyes see or decide by what his ears hear, but with righteousness he shall judge for the poor and decide with equity for the oppressed of the earth. He shall strike the earth with the rod of his... Where's his rod? His mouth. And with the breath of his lips... He shall kill the wicked. Righteousness shall be the belt around his waist and faithfulness the belt around his loin. All right, so Isaiah says that there's going to be this um, shoot that, that comes from the stump of Jesse. Well, who's Jesse? Jesse is David's father. So it's a way of him saying he's going to be in the royal lineage. What Isaiah is really saying is, remember that promise God made to David? several hundred years ago, that he's, always, he's going to have a descendant who's going to sit on the throne forever. Isaiah saying, I'm talking about that guy. I'm talking about this Messiah who we're all looking forward to. And he says this true king, he's going to, the Spirit of God's going to rest upon him. In fact, he's going to be so anointed, he's going to have this seven-fold anointing. Let's look back at verse 2. Let me, show you, let me show you what I mean. Verse 2, let's count it. The spirit of Yahweh shall rest on him, number one. The spirit of wisdom, two. Understanding, three. The spirit of counsel and might. The spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord, sevenfold. You remember in the book of Revelation, the lamb is depicted, depicted as having seven eyes and seven horns. And then John the Revelator says, the seven spirits of God will come upon the earth. 
That's its pictorial language, but this is what he's referring to. Isaiah says this, this true king, he's going to be anointed sevenfold. And he's going to judge for the meek, the hurting, the oppressed of the earth. And he's going to rule by his word. He's going to destroy wickedness by the word of his mouth. Much of this prophetic imagery later gets incorporated into the book of Revelation. Now watch this. Let's pick it up in verse 6. One more bit of reading here. Because now what Isaiah is going to do is he's going to radically reimagine the world under the inspiration of God's spirit. And look at how he describes it. Verse 6, he says, the wolf shall live with the lamb. The leopard shall lie down with the kid. The calf and the lion will feed together. And a little child shall lead them. Verse 7, the cow and the bear shall graze. Their young shall lie down together. And the lion shall eat straw like the ox. The nursing child shall play over the hole of the asp. And the weaned child shall put its hand on the adder's den. They will not hurt or destroy on all my holy mountain. For the earth will be full of the knowledge of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. Now, the worst thing you can do with that is literalize it. Which is what we're so apt to do as 21st century Westerners. We want to literalize everything. And if you literalize this, it skates right on by you without any power. It doesn't pack any punch. You have to remember Isaiah is a prophet poet. And they were always the same thing. Prophets always spoke in poetic language. And so Isaiah, he's very skilled and he knows how to use symbol. He knows how to use metaphor. And so for Isaiah, his poetic image is carnivores dwelling peaceably with herbivores. And everything being so safe that kids can play with snakes. But it's symbol. If you literalize it, you miss the whole point. Or let me just say it like this. The great problems of the world today have nothing to do with carnivorous animals. If I were to ask you right now, what do you think's at the root of some of the biggest problems of the world? What do you, you think some of the biggest problems of the world? And if you were to respond and say, it's those lions, man. It's, those lions are always eating those gazelles. That's absurd. Leave the lions alone. They're just fine. I'll say it like this. The great hope of the world is not that lions become vegetarians. That's not the great hope of the world. But what Isaiah's doing is he's reimagining the world as a place that is not predatory. Isaiah is reimagining the world as a place where the strong do not prey upon the weak. When this stump of Jesse produces this shoot, when this true king emerges, Isaiah is saying, what's the world going to be like? It's going to be like this. It's going to be a world of compassion and benevolence, not a place that's vicious and predatory. And it's a place where the smallest, weakest among us, little children, will be perfectly safe. Three times he uses the same image. He talks about the little child, the weaning child, the nursing child, and then he says, nothing will harm innocence on God's holy mountain. The world of Caesar is a world run by lions and leopards and wolves and bears. That's why 
both the book of Daniel and Revelation later on will use the images of these very kinds of animals to depict the vicious kingdoms and empires that had been running the world at that time. In the world of Cain, the strong prey upon the weak. And Cain kills Abel over and over and over again, usually for the sake of economic gain. The wolf devours the lamb. The world of Cain is a world organized around violent power where the weak and the children always suffer the most. But after the death and resurrection of Christ, the world is ruled by a lamb. That's mind-blowing. That'll make you rethink some things. World history's always been the same. From the very beginning of world history, there's always been either a lion, a leopard, a wolf, or a bear on the throne. That's why all of these kingdoms and empires from the very beginning of human history that have run the world, they always choose one of those things as their symbols. Predatory animals as their symbols. Who has a little lamb as their symbol? There is a kingdom that does. And we confess that after the death and resurrection of Christ, a lamb is now ruling the world. And those who are gathered to Messiah's holy mountain, that is to say the kingdom of God, they do no harm. This is the world reimagined under the reign of Messiah, the Lamb of God. And if you say, Ryan, that kind of world is impossible, I say all things are possible to him who believes. Don't tell me it's impossible. Jesus himself, the slain Lamb, who's now ruling and reigning, says all things are possible to him who believes. I imagine a non-predatory world when the root of Jesse is called the king of kings, and we who have been baptized, we who call ourselves Christians, we who follow this lamb king, we are to work with King Jesus to build a world where children and the elderly are safe and the weakest and most vulnerable among us are not exploited. Why? Because the wolf lays down with the lamb. We are that holy mountain gathered around the Sermon on the Mount following the lamb who we confess as king. The wolf shall dwell with the lamb, Isaiah says. Imagine that. The wolf shall dwell with the lamb. When? When Messiah comes. Joy to the world. The Lord has come. Let earth receive her king. And the wolf shall lay down with the lamb. I want to close with this story. Maybe you've heard it. It's the legend of St. Francis and the Wolf of Gubbio. Some 800 years ago, 13th century Italy, the town of Gubbio, just outside the city walls, there was a wolf. Apparently, the wolf was hungry. And he started devouring the livestock of the people of Gubbio. And then he took to attacking the people themselves. And no one could slay or capture the wolf. And the people of Gubbio lived in dread fear of this creature. And they were afraid to even leave the city walls for fear of the wolf. So St. Francis comes to this village. He hears about the problems they were facing 
sees how the people are living in fear. And he says, I'll go talk to the wolf. They tried to reason with him. You can't go talk to the wolf. He'll kill you. He'll tear you to pieces. He says, I'll go talk to the wolf. And Francis went to the wolf. And sure enough, the wolf snarled and came charging at him. As the story is told, Francis makes the sign of the cross. And then he speaks to the wolf. And he says, now, brother wolf, stop that. He rebukes the wolf. And the wolf bows its head and lays at the feet of Francis and begins to whimper. That's how wolves repent. (laughs) He was converted. (laughs) He was forgiven. And Francis leads the wolf to the city gates of Gubbio and he calls the leaders of the city out and he says, all right, we're going to have an agreement here. We're going to have an understanding. We're going to have an agreement. And you all, you're going to provide for the wolf and make sure he's taken care of. And the wolf will stop, you know, eating all of your livestock and attacking your people. And everybody agreed. They said, we agree. And Francis shakes the paw of the wolf. That's the story. That's the legend. And it's a true story but it's told in symbol. The wolf was a man. He was a landowner who had become so brutal and vicious that the people of Guvio began calling him the wolf. See, he was living during a time of profound economic change. It was the end of the feudal economy, the beginning of the mercantile economy. And so all of these peasants who had been working his land for him, one by one they were leaving and they were going into the village to become merchants. He was losing his labor force. He was very angry about it. And so he began attacking the people of Gubbio. And they lived in fear. They they were even afraid to leave their village, believing this man would come after them. Well, St. Francis comes to their village and he hears about what's happening. And he says, I'll go talk to the man. They said, you can't go talk to that man. He'll kill you. He'll slit your throat. He said, I'll go talk to the man. And he goes out and he finds this man and he reproves him, he rebukes him. And he calls him to repent and the man did. And Francis forgave him. And then he took this man and he brought him and led him to the gates of the city and he called the city leaders out of the city. And he says, okay, we're going to work something out here. We're going to settle this. And there's going to be peace and there's going to be accord. And we're going to decide for the meek of the earth. See, what is Francis doing? He's acting like Messiah has come. Because what happens when Messiah comes? He's going to decide disputes. He's going he's to decide with equity for the meek of the earth. And as Christians, we're called to reimagine the world right now under the reign of Christ. We are to, with eyes of faith, see and imagine what would life look like on earth? What would our relationships with one another look like? What would our communities look like? What would the globe look like under the reign of Christ? We're called to imagine with eyes of faith and by faith begin moving in that direction now. We ought to sit down together and dream and imagine what does the world look like when God's vision is made manifest and by faith move in that direction together 
believing that the Lamb is leading us and all things are possible to him who believes. Stand with me this morning. I want you to close your eyes and I just want you to enter into a space of quiet and calm and peace and contemplation. If Jesus Christ, the Lamb of God, the light of the world, truly is the one who saves the world, who redeems the world, who rescues the world and restores and heals the world, if that's who He is, if that's His identity, then I'm asking you right now personally, in this moment, where is your world in need of salvation and healing and restoration and things being made right? Around your own sphere of life, where do you see brokenness? Where do you see pain? When you right now imagine the faces of the people you work with, the people you live around, the people you're connected to, Where do you see things gone wrong? Where do you see troubled souls? Where do you see broken relationships? Now right now, just in your own way, ask the Lord, God, give me eyes of faith. Give me holy imagination. Help me to see what can be May your light flood into this dark corner of the world that is my life. And right now, would you just welcome him? Shine your light. Lord, this broken marriage, this estranged relationship, these people on my street who are struggling to make ends meet, Shine your light, the light that heals, restores, and makes right. And Lord, may I be an instrument of your peace. As Francis prayed, Lord, make me an instrument of your peace. Where there's hatred, let me sow love. Where there's injury, pardon. Where there's doubt, faith. Wherever I see despair, let me sow seeds of hope. Where there is darkness, light. Where there is sadness, joy. O Divine Master, grant that we may not so much seek to be consoled as to console. To be understood as to understand. To be loved as to love. For it is in giving that we receive. It is in pardoning that we are pardoned. And it is in dying that we are born to eternal life. Amen. Thank you for listening to today's message. To learn more about Village Church, visit our website at villagechurchburbank.org.